29 through, 50, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what he had been commanded. They saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.12-4.2 through 4, 2. Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Luke 9, 28 through 43. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at the time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelie un oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, 
The demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The word of the Lord. Transformation is the the least interesting, most complex subject, perhaps, in the New Testament. It's the least interesting because it involves change. And who among us really likes to change? I mean, really. Uh, Guys, how many of you willingly go to the doctor unless it hurts? Okay. Uh, Change is hard. Transformation is not an easy thing. And what we hope for, what we yearn for, whenever somebody starts talking about transformation, is that it'll be easy. It'll be, as we used to say in Oklahoma, slicker than calf snot. It'll just slide. It'll just happen. That's what we hope for. But transformation is not that way. There are bumps and challenges and confusion, and it is hard. The framers of the common lectionary that we use half the year for our scripture passages understood this perhaps best on this Sunday, this last Sunday of the Epiphany, this last Sunday that we look through the windows and see the light of God coming into our lives. This this sort of last possible Sunday connected to the Christmas season. We've been through Advent where we've gotten ready and we've celebrated the birth of Jesus at Christmas. And now we've been through this time of epiphany, a time of manifestation, a time of revealing where God communicates to us His hope, His glory. Where when what once was unclear and dark becomes light and bright. We've reached the last Sunday in that season. We pivot next Sunday to the season of Lent, to a time of reflection and getting ready for the cross and the resurrection. But in this last Sunday of Epiphany, this Sunday of transfiguration, three stories come our way in the biblical text that help us understand the challenges of transformation. The first story is from Exodus. It is a story about Moses, and it is one of those Old Testament stories that you go, what on earth is happening here? I remember enduring art history class, and it was more of an endurance for my professor with me in it than it was for me taking it. And looking at Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses and wondering, what kind of funky hairstyle is that? (laughs) How did he get those little two things, bits of hair all rolled up? And then I discovered in seminary that those aren't, that isn't a hairdo. That's a representation of light radiating from Moses' face. In the Hebrew, the word is karan, which means horns. Horns of light, the text says, were shooting out of Moses' face after he had spent all this time with God 
rewriting the law. Because as you remember, you remember, he comes down from Mount Sinai the first time with the law that's been written by the finger of God. And he looks, and here are the people of Israel, and they've taken all their gold and melted it down and built a golden calf to worship because Moses is missing in action. And Moses, man, can I relate to this? Moses takes the tablets and he slams them down in anger. The, the finger of God wrote these. What were you thinking? And God says, well, okay, we need some new tablets. <laughs> but you're going to have to write them this time. So Moses trots back up into the mountains and chisels out the tablets. And this time holding them very carefully. He comes down and he has horns of light coming out of his face, the text says. Now, I don't know how you would respond to that, but I'd be a little freaked out. I'd be a little nervous about what that meant. And Aaron, his brother, and all of the leaders were... We're scared, but here's the nice thing about fear. It has a way of captivating the attention. Because when Moses says, come here, I need to tell you about these tablets, they came. And Moses unpacks the Torah, the instruction of God to his people. In pre-Civil War America, Nathaniel Hawthorne captures this whole story with uh, a short story called The Minister's Black Veil and, and the Reverend Mr. Hooper who wears a black veil on his face for his own reasons through his ministry. But what, what occurs to me as I read that story again was Reverend Mr. Hooper, you know, he, he became pretty successful in ministry. I tell you, it was... It was you know, six and five, and you pick them about whether I would wear a veil today or not. <laughs> but what's happening in Exodus 34, and, and what this story is about, is Moses' transformation. Remember, Moses was the stutterer. He was, he was the guy that, that didn't have the gifts. At middle age, he was... He was working for his father-in-law at the entry level. He wasn't running the sheep operation. He was out in the field tending sheep. He was chasing stupid sheep down when God appears to him in the burning bush in Exodus 3. That's one heck of a midlife crisis. Moses reluctantly, always reluctantly, moved into the role of leader of the people of God as they began their journey out of bondage and towards the promised land. But at this point, in this moment, in this instance, Moses is transformed. Not in a slick, easy way. He had to go chisel out a bunch of tablets. But in his work with the rock, he was transformed from the befuddled stutterer to the commanding presence of the people of God. 
There would be bumps and bruises along the way, but Moses' leadership would not be questioned ever again without divine response. Moses was in charge because he had taken the time to listen to God. Moses' story had changed from befuddled stutterer to leader of the people of God. But then there's Paul. And Paul, he has a way of sort of taking stories and turning them on their heads. And he does this in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. Now, what you've got to remember about Paul and the Corinthian church was Paul loved this church and they tended to hate him. It was not a, it was not a mutual admiration society. Paul was the guy from headquarters who showed up and the church went, him again. Do we really have to put up with this guy? Yes. The Corinthian church was every bit as broken and factionalized and disgruntled with each other as they had always been. Paul's first letter was a whole series of, don't do this anymore. Don't sue each other. Don't commit incest. Don't, don't do this stuff. Do this stuff. Worship this way. Love one another. And Paul has to write a second letter. And the second letter is because they got the first letter and they said, well, who do you think you are? You're... Are you an apostle? You're not one of the twelve. You're not Peter or James or John. You're, you're Paul. Who cares? And Paul has to write a letter defending his role as an apostle of Christ to the Corinthian church. And so he does. And he takes this story, this, this story of Moses, and he says, we can be bold, which wasn't what Moses was up to. Well, yeah, it was, but Paul was using this story for his own purposes. And he talks about how, how the veil masked the truth of God because, because you couldn't handle it. It was a Jack Nicholson moment. You can't handle the truth. And Paul says, but we can because of Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us to handle the truth about ourselves, looking at ourselves in the mirror and confronting our brokenness, looking at ourselves in the light of others and realizing life is not perfect and that that's not the point of life. But that Jesus unveils God's glory. And reminds us that that's what makes us whole. Not, not our efforts, but Christ's efforts in us and through us and with us. And so Paul says the truth gets transformed because of Jesus. And we can have brave hearts. And we can speak plainly the good news of the Gospel to one another. And Paul from this point on is no longer the cowering enemy 
of this factionalized and fractured congregation, he is the truth teller. He is the bold apostle who speaks and the congregation hears him. Light creates truth. And sometimes we have to veil that truth in order for it to be heard. And sometimes we unveil that truth in order to be heard. But the light of the gospel is the truth. The final story, the gospel story, is even more befuddling to me. Jesus had, eight days before this story took place, predicted to his disciples that he was going to be killed. And the disciples had a major moment of freaking out. No, Jesus, you're not going to get killed. No way that's going to happen. Yes, it is. That's the way it's going to be. I've got to carry my cross. And oh, by the way, so do you. So now the, now the disciples are pretty nervous. Eight days is a huge gap in Luke's story. Things don't, things don't have eight-day windows of silence in Luke's gospel, except here. So clearly the disciples are in a season of reflection and maybe even numbness. They don't know how to respond to Jesus' words before. And so Jesus takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountain, to a mountain called Mount Tabor, and he begins to pray. And they start praying together. And all of a sudden, Jesus begins to shine. The luminosity of Christ is an even greater luminosity than that of Moses in Exodus. And then all of a sudden, standing on one side of Jesus is Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the greatest and first of the prophets. And they're talking about what has to happen in the days and weeks ahead leading up to Jesus' death. They're having this strategic discussion with Peter, James, and John, no longer sleepy because they've gone up to the mountain to pray with Jesus, but now wide awake because, oh my gosh, what is this? And, of course, Peter, you know, he just has to say something dumb. So, oh, this is cool, Jesus, let's just, let's just let's build a truck stop here. Let's have a permanent place where everybody can come and see this wonderful thing. And, you know, the voice from heaven says, in essence, in a polite way, Peter, shut up and listen to Jesus. And the inner circle is left speechless again, like they were eight days before when Jesus predicts his death. They are now really left speechless. They do not know what to do in the face of divinity, speaking to them and laying out this path that Jesus must walk on. Because up until this point, Jesus has been the wonder worker. He's been the great man of God who has, who has healed and, and who has cast out demons and who has who has brought people back from the dead. He's a wonder worker. He's a great man. And Jesus leads them down the hill, and there's the crowd confronting Jesus again. Hey, Jesus, we got a bunch of stuff for you to do. And Jesus is just, he's so frustrated. 
the, the humanity of Jesus comes pouring out in Luke's, in Luke's text. And, and it's like, how long do I have to put up? Can the crucifixion come a little sooner? How long do I have to put up with you people? Bring, bring the kid here. Bring him here. Bring him here. And they start bringing the, the young child to Jesus, and the demonic presence in him goes into a convulsive shock, and Jesus heals him, and the crowd begins to get it. The veil begins to get pulled back, and they realize there's something more here than just one of the village wonder workers. Because wonder workers were a dime a dozen in Jesus' day. They were all over the place. Jesus, Jesus, until this point in Luke's Gospel, really didn't have a unique ministry in the eyes of the crowds. He was just another guy out there doing good for God. But now, the transfiguration and this changes perception of Jesus. He is, he is no longer just another wonder worker. He is the Son of God who is on the way to the cross and on his way to the redemption of the world. These are hard passages to wrap our heads around because they don't buy into our narrative about transformation. They don't buy into the narrative that if you just buy the right self-help book or you know, listen to the right podcast long enough, you will figure out how you're supposed to live your life. And you will get from point A to point B easy. These are three stories that remind us how hard the journey is. And that's the point. The, the path of transformation is in God's glory not in our capacity. Transformation doesn't happen because we've worked hard enough for it. Transformation happens because we're willing to open the door and see the light of God. We're willing to take that risk and deal with the light that doesn't make sense to us. God's glory transforms. It, it changes our narrative. It changes our hope. It changes our sense of redemption. Transformation is, is the purpose of God's glory appearing. And Lent, this, this journey that we begin this coming week, Lent is the path that we walk on the road to transformation. And so these stories together tell us at least four things. They tell us that transformation demands our attention. Transformation doesn't happen while we sit idly by watching the Super Bowl. Tra transformation doesn't happen to us while we sit over here ignoring it. Transformation demands that we focus in and pay attention to what God's doing, that we are looking for the fingerprints of God in our lives, in our community, in the world. Transformation demands our participation. It's not, transformation is not a spectator's sport. You're not going to transform through a podcast. You're going to transform by being a co-participant with God. 
But transformation also occurs in the ecology of community. No one, no one transforms alone in these passages. It is Moses with the people of Israel. It is Paul and the Corinthian church. It is Jesus and his disciples. None of us transform by ourselves. The rugged individualist is a myth. And the promise of the gospel is we go on the journey together. But that also means that transformation will be ambiguous. It will surprise us. It will not be quite what we thought it was going to be. It will take us by surprise and take us in directions that we did not think we were going to go. Whatever your plan for the next 20 years, here's the thing I can guarantee. It ain't going to happen that way. Whatever you think the next 20 years are going to look like, it'll be different. That doesn't mean we don't dream and aspire and hope and plot and, and plan for. It just means you will execute plan B. But that's the good news because, because the light of God's love and grace is with us in plan B. We think of plan B as, oh, I failed. It's a, it's a mess. It's a failure. Plan B is where God reveals his grace. Our lives light up after we've crashed the tablets written by the finger of God. People get us after we've been in conflict with them. People begin to understand God's work in the world when they realize that they've had such a narrow view up until that point. These are the stories of transformation. And they require from us only that we be flexible and open to God's light at work in our lives. So this morning, some questions. We are about to enter an incredibly interesting week, the week where we transition from, from the celebrations of the holidays to the journey of Lent. And so on Tuesday, my favorite day of the year, Fat Tuesday. I love that, I love that day. Pancake Tuesday, two days out of the year I eat pancakes. My birthday and Pancake Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday. I do it just to irritate whoever's thinking I shouldn't eat pancakes. <laughs> and, and if I still could, I'd eat a stack that tall. I have no idea what happened to the text up there. but Okay. There are... Plan B. There are plan B. <laughs> but that stack of pancakes represents... Our plan A, I can go along through life and I can eat a stack of pancakes every day. But there comes a point in our lives, there comes a point where we have to be willing to take a different step. The step of Ash Wednesday. And in the Western Christian tradition, we, 
we place, or some churches place ashes on the forehead as a reminder that we, that we are broken, that we are not perfect, that we require a life of penitence. There's a great painting from uh, Peter Burgle, the elder, from, uh, the, from almost 1560, where he paints a scene of the clash between Carnival, Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, and Ash Wednesday. He paints a scene between living life with decadence and living with penance. And our Western notion, is, as, I, as I first looked at that painting, was to think, oh, it's the Tuesday crowd that's having fun. The, the Wednesday crowd's all dressed in dark and somber, and they're walking into church. How boring. But the more you look at it, the Tuesday crowd doesn't have a lot of joy on their faces. Because they're stuck there. They're stuck with their plan A. And they have not heard the good news of plan B. The good news that God is with us when things don't work out. God is with us when the tablets break. When the, when the rule book doesn't work anymore. God is with us when people that we thought would love us and support us and walk with us are fractured and angry with us instead. God is with us when we know what's coming is the cross. God is with us in plan B. And so we choose the ambiguity of Ash Wednesday. We choose the ambiguous walk of Lent. We choose the road that takes us in a new direction. And so this morning, three questions. What needs to be transformed in your life? When you look in the mirror, what, what needs to be transformed? What, what is it about what's going on in your life that I don't want to go there anymore? What needs transformation? And Secondly, what tools do you require for that transformation? During the Epiphany season, we've talked about the tools that come with transformation. We've talked about baptism as a way in which God's light is revealed to us, spiritual gifts, the scriptures, and the greatest of these, which is love. What are the tools you need to go on that journey of transformation? And who will be your partners to help light the way in the journey of transformation. Lent will not be a straight line path. Lent will look more like the hikes that Emilio Lopez takes you on. <laughs> they will be arduous and leave you gasping for air. At least the hikes Emilio has taken me on <laughs> leave you tired and worn out but also thunderstruck at the beauty and amazed at the dimensions of God's fingerprints all around us. 
So I could think of no better quote, one more thing this morning than to uh, reach back to Nathaniel Hawthorne's colleague, Ralph Waldo Emerson, in his essay, Self-Reliance, and remind us of the inconsistency of the transforming journey. Emerson writes, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines, with consistency a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood? Is it so bad then? to be misunderstood. Pythagoras was misunderstood. And Socrates and Jesus and Luther and Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. Now we can understand what Emerson meant as, oh, well, I, you don't get me, so I must be great. <laughs> Or we can understand that the journey is always about the execution of plan B. That Lent will always take us down a road we did not expect. But that road, that journey, is where Christ meets us and loves us and cares for us and forgives us and heals us. Thanks be to God for his ambiguous, amazing, wonderful word. Amen.